Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. I just want to make a plea to listeners. This podcast survives on the financial contributions of listeners like you. Please help keep the podcast alive by becoming a premium subscriber by going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and becoming a subscriber today. You can do so for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. This greatly supports the podcast. And if you donate at a higher level, $50 or $100 a year, you get a free Mormon Discussion Podcast logo t-shirt. Also, don't forget the new bookstore that you can reach on the website by clicking the link, Bookstore. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. D. Michael Quinn, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Good. Glad to have you on. I think everybody who listens to this podcast is going to know uh, your work and, and your story, but maybe for the, the one listener uh, who doesn't, maybe just share with us kind of a brief bio about yourself, and then we'll jump into to kind of breaking down your story a little bit. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start memory lane down the beginning and then uh, go. And you interrupt and tell me that's enough whenever you want. Um, I uh, was born in March 1944 in Pasadena, California, and my uh, mother was a sixth-generation Mormon, um, blue-eyed, redhead, and my father <coughs> was uh, Mexican. His parents had uh, come to the United States across the um, Rio Grande during the Mexican Revolution around 1910. He was born in Arizona, uh, and uh, so I had this mixed background. He uh, was Roman Catholic and Mexican, and my mother was um, a blue-eyed blonde Mormon of... Uh, uh, I, well, it was, her extraction was probably more Swiss and English than anything else. Um, I was raised uh, most of my life in adjacent Glendale, California, and um, growing up there, I, I was raised primarily by my grandparents, my mother's parents, because my uh, parents divorced when I was four. And uh, my mother worked, and so my grandmother and grandfather uh, took care of me and did most of the raising of me. And that was particularly true after I turned 11 when my mother remarried, and uh, I declined to move with her and uh, with her a new husband. And uh, so I stayed from that point forward with my grandparents and didn't lived with my mother uh, as a teenager, uh, but did uh, the last five years of her life, I resumed living with my mother uh, and uh, helped her with medical issues and things that uh, she had those those years. Um, I uh, remained in Glendale uh, in a tight-knit group of Mormons. In our high school, there were two major high schools in Glendale, and the uh, one high school I attended uh, had about um, 3,500 students in it in three three different grades. And uh, altogether, there were about 75 to 100 Mormons in the group. And that, you know, in terms of the total number of students was small. But for us, that was a large enough group to allow a lot of dating and uh, interactions that were exclusively with Mormons. And I was very clannish, as most of us were, and did not uh, socialize with 
non-Mormons. We were uh, very much a uh, inter um, interacting group that was uh, very much us them. And uh, although we had friends in school who were non-Mormons, uh, I don't think I was unusual in having no significant social uh, interactions outside our Mormon group. Um, then when I graduated from high school, I went to Brigham Young University uh, for a year, then went on a mission to England, uh, which uh, mission was headquartered in London. And I came back uh, to BYU and uh, continued as a student there. I uh, married uh, just before my last year at BYU and I moved to Salt Lake initially to Provo, but that didn't work out. And so we remained um, the rest of my school year after about a month, uh, senior year in Salt Lake City, where my wife's family uh, was. And then uh, the Vietnam War was going on uh, raging at this time, particularly after the Tet Offensive in February of 1968. And um, four months after the Tet Offensive, I volunteered and entered the U.S. military and served for three years in the U.S. Army. And my specialty was uh, military intelligence. I was a counterintelligence agent in training on the East Coast for a year and a half and then uh, was assigned to Munich, Germany, and I was a counterintelligence agent there for about a year and a half. When I went out of the Army, I um, had planned most of um, my undergraduate years to get a PhD in English, and I had been accepted at Duke uh, University in a PhD program. But while I was in the military, I gradually um, transitioned from emphasizing in my spare time reading um, English literature, and, uh, and I moved to what had been a hobby for me, and but I increasingly moved into looking at Mormon history, which had always been a, uh, a sideline of mine ever since I was 16. I uh, have been reading Mormon history. And so when I got out of the military in uh, March of 1971, I um, enrolled at the University of Utah uh, in a master's program in history, which was academically quite new to me. I had, as an undergraduate, I'd only taken one elective course in history because I uh, knew so much about history from independent reading that I wanted uh, my minor to be a more challenging topic to me, so I minored in philosophy as an undergraduate at BYU. My major was English literature. But then in 1971, I started coursework in history. And my uh, advisor in March, who was assigned by the uh, university to me, was uh, Davis Pippen. And he was working on a project uh, about Mormon diaries, and he hired me a month later after we met to be his chief research assistant. Um, and my work was exclusively in what we call the church archives, but it was the church historian's office on the third floor of the church administration building, 47 East South Temple. And uh, at that time, the uh, church historian had changed uh, about a year and a half before I started doing research there. 
and Howard W. Hunter, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, was the uh, official church historian. And it had been his decision a few months before I arrived to open the archives to anyone who was interested in researching its materials and to make the materials completely available to them. And so while I was reading diaries uh, that uh, were on a list of uh, those that uh, the research assistant Davis Gooden could read, I noticed on the list general names of general authorities, and I put my initials by all of those uh, and uh, began reading general authority diaries. And so I, it was such an open archives in 1971, and this was exclusively the responsibility of uh, Apostle uh, Howard W. Hunter, who was a church historian. Uh, I was reading, uh, for example, one day I was reading the diaries of Heber J. Grant, president of the church for decades, and sitting next to me was a non-Mormon who was reading files and taking notes, extensive notes on the files of, of the First Presidency that uh, were being made available to him uh, in his research area, which was the uh, 1880s uh, conflict between the Mormon Church and federal government. And uh, he was so obviously a, a non-Mormon that he reeked of tobacco. <laughs> and so I was sitting next to this non-Mormon who was reading the uh, administrative files of the First Presidency, uh, and I was taking extensive notes and transcripts from the diaries of of, uh, uh, J, of President uh, Heber J. Grant. And this was, uh, we were neither one of us were employees of the church. We were doing independent research, and uh, I had told uh, Davis Pitt that I had a lot of research interests beyond the things that he told me to look for. He was interested especially in dreams and visions. But I told him I had all these other interests and asked him if it was okay if I could keep carbon copies of my, my notes. And he said, sure. And, uh, he was, uh, very pleased with the detailed transcripts I was giving him of all these things that were of interest to me in addition to what he had told me he was interested in. And so he, he told me to keep going and, and I wasn't slowing him down because I typed, uh, a hundred words a minute, uh, trained at that level when I was in the military. And at BYU, I was reading 2,500 words a minute. And so I would very often leave the uh, archives with 20 to 30 pages of single space notes every day. And uh, so that's what I was doing. And uh, about two months into my work, maybe three, I was introduced to Leonard Arrington as a historian at Utah State University by his research assistant in the church archives, a fellow named Richard Bennett, who's now the dean for the chair, I'm not exactly sure of his title, of uh, uh, religious studies uh, at BYU, uh, the church history chair in the religious education uh, department or college at uh, BYU. But back then, he was just a graduate student, and and I was a graduate student, and and through our getting acquainted, he uh, invited me to lunch one day to uh, meet 
Leonard Arrington. And so that's how I met Leonard was through his research assistant, and we had a nice chat in um, the Hotel Utah where he took us for lunch. And, and a month later, I was stunned when um, I learned from Richard that uh, Leonard wanted me to become his research assistant uh, because Richard was going back to Canada uh, in September to uh, continue his graduate study, uh, studies at the, I think it was Edmonton University in, in Alberta, Canada. And I turned Leonard down because I said I couldn't leave Davis Bitten in the lurch. Uh, I had agreed to be his research assistant, and I was stunned and very complimented by his invitation, but I said I, I had a prior commitment to Richard to Davis Bitten. But then Davis Bitten's uh, research funds run out in November, uh, and he gave me notice. I was the last one of his assistants who was hired, but I was the one who he put in as his chief research assistant. But because I was the last one he hired, I was the first one he fired. And uh, so he gave me 30 days notice and told me that my uh, employment uh, and wages with him would end at the end of December. And so with that notice, from him, I wrote Leonard Arrington and said I didn't know if his offer was still open for me, but that I no longer had the conflict of interest and, and that my work with uh, Davis Bitten was was ending in, uh, at the end of December. And so at the end of December, uh, he hired me as his uh, Salt Lake research assistant. And instead of research, which I had you know, been doing for Dave Spit, you know, intensively, and that was all I was doing, was research and typing these thousands of pages of of, um, of notes that I had been typing for him during um, April to November, December, rather, of uh, 1971, Leonard uh, hired me to be his ghostwriter. And uh, so from the end of January until mid uh, pardon me, the end of March, excuse me, the end of December 1971 until mid-January 1972, uh, I was writing uh, articles for him, uh, uh, researching them, but writing them very quickly and because I, again, I, I wrote fast um, as well as read fast and typed fast. Um, and so then in mid-January, he informed me that the first presidency had called him to be the first professionally trained church historian, and he told me that this was uh, confidential and that I shouldn't tell anyone else, uh, aside from my wife, who already knew because he told her before he told me. Um, but uh, he said that he wanted to hire me as uh, his research assistant uh, to be a member of his staff once he was officially appointed as church historian. And so my uh, interview with um, the uh, overseer of, of church, uh, the church historian department, which was being formed at that time, was um, uh, in February. And then uh, as of the 1st of March, uh, I was officially a member of Leonard Arrington's staff and was on the payroll of what was called the Historical Department of the Church, but my checks came from, the, I think, the presiding bishop's office, but it might have been from the president's 
the, uh, or rather the trustee, not, not trustee, excuse me, corporation of the president. But, uh, I don't remember now which was the, the designation of my checks. But I was on the staff of the church historian, the official church historian, and, um, was, uh, getting paid by the church, but I was only part time. Uh, I, uh, was a full time graduate student and part time working for the church. And so I, I put in, 20 hours a week, and the way I divided it up is that I would uh, come in and arrive at the historian's office on Tuesday and Thursdays, and uh, and those were the days I would put in for uh, the full day of work that I would do for uh, Leonard Arrington, and uh, and then uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the weekends were my uh, graduate work uh, time period. And I continued with Leonard uh, doing the research projects for him, some of which were published while I was at uh, in his employ. But I discontinued his employment in August 1973 when I completed my master's degree at uh, the University of Utah and then uh, drove to Connecticut where I began full-time as a uh, uh, graduate student at Yale University, and um, that was made possible for me only because of Leonard. I, Yale had initially turned down my application, and Leonard contacted the dean of admissions and asked why I had been turned down, and the dean called Leonard at home on a Saturday, <clears throat> and they had a two-hour conversation, and out of that two-hour conversation came a an offer for a half tuition fellowship from Yale University if I would accept that. And, um, and I did. And so Leonard was the one who got me into Yale. And, uh, I, 30, let's see, 33 months later, I, uh, I finished, I graduated from Yale with a PhD. And a month after that, I was hired by BYU and became a professor of uh, American history at BYU from April, pardon me, from August 1976 until I uh, discontinued my uh, service as a as a full professor and director of BYU's graduate program in history in the spring of 1988. And uh, since that time, I have been an independent scholar. I've not had a a permanent uh, uh, academic appointment, um, aside from fellowship, until I became a full-time uh, member of Yale's faculty uh, for a one-year appointment, and it was understood from the beginning that it would be a one-year-only appointment at Yale University from August 9, uh, 2002 until June uh, of 2003. And uh, that has been my last academic appointment uh, during that year on the faculty at uh, Yale University. Gotcha, gotcha. I uh, I want to jump in here and just kind of maybe get up to this point with a uh, with some questions that just kind of are going on within Mormonism at large, but then kind of come back to this idea of you, um, the church, kind of distancing itself from you, and obviously uh, your excommunication from the church. But I want to kind of filter several questions kind of off the topic as well. And, and and maybe I should preface all this by saying I reached out to the listeners of the podcast and asked them, you know, what do you want me to ask Brother Quinn 
about his life, about uh, about his interaction with the church, about some of the books he's written. And just so you know, you know, for the record, several people, all they said was, tell Brother Quinn we love him. And I, I want you to know how appreciated and loved you are within the LDS community. Well, thank you. Uh, that I know that isn't universal. And so, um, uh, you know, it means a lot when people do express that to me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know you, you point that out, right? It's not universal, but... Let me tell you, the, the folks that I work with and whose opinions uh, at least matter to me, you are highly respected. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. So, and I'm going to, these are, these are going to jump around a bunch and, uh, and perhaps there's not necessarily an order to some of these questions, but I want to get a feel for, you know, if we just jump ahead to the present day and everything that's been going on in Mormonism for the last, let's say, couple of years with the Joseph Smith papers and, and the essays that have come out up from the church. What do you make of the essays that have been written in the last 12 months from the church that, that seem to be wanna, to, to want to address some of these serious issues? I think they're wonderful. I, my, uh, view of them is that, uh, they provide an official acknowledgement of the, uh, difficult areas of church history that, uh, many people have puzzled over tried to understand because they sometimes involve contradictions. They sometimes involve uh, evidences of humanity in the leaders of the church, particularly in the uh, prophets, uh, seers, and revelators, um, and certainly in the rank and file. Uh, everyone is human, and that doesn't cease to be true when you're called as a prophet. Um, the uh, The Obviously, and they acknowledge this at the end of usually in the footnote um, that these um, statements, <clears throat> position papers, or whatever you might want to call them, on a variety of issues, uh, doctrinal and historical, have been written and published on the church's website after consultation with historians and other uh, academic experts in the field. But it typically, aside from footnote references to published items that uh, readers can look at, it doesn't designate those who have been involved in the drafting and the writing of uh, the uh, statements, which is is fine. I think you know that that uh, I'm pleased that they footnote them uh, and that they uh, direct the rank and file who are reading these to. Uh, generally scholarly, but not always scholarly uh, publications. Some of these are citations to the Ensign and uh, articles written by a variety of people from a variety of backgrounds in church publications, as well as uh, uh, academic publications. And uh, and so I, I find it a, a very pleasing development in the last couple of years or so of these being posted on the church's official website, and I think that for some members of the church, this material is, is very new and, and requires them to readjust their, their uh, understanding of, of the processes involved in revelation, the processes involved in decision-making, and in the uh, history of the church uh, since uh, Joseph Smith was a teenager and having his uh, searches for a religion as a 14-year-old and even younger down to the present. But uh, for many uh, 
of the members of the church or those who've been raised in the church, these are familiar issues and in some cases all too familiar because uh, evangelical Protestants in particular have used some of these um, areas of, of difficulty, areas of controversy, areas of contradiction as battering rams against the faith of Latter-day Saints, who in many cases have had no recourse, no understanding of, uh, in terms of what they've been trained in from seminary, uh, seminary students to institute uh, teachers who have not discussed these issues and who had no preparation for the attacks on their faith by evangelical Protestants and uh, have uh, because of the uh, availability of these websites that have attacked faith and continue to on the Internet, have had no defense and have come to the conclusion as members of the church, some of them third, fourth, fifth generation Mormons, that they've been lied to, which was not the case. In many cases, their seminary teachers knew no more about this information than uh, they learned themselves in seminary. And that sometimes has been true of institute teachers. Um, and yet the conclusion was, uh, in many cases, of people who've been disaffected from the LDS Church in recent decades, that they've been lied to about these issues. And so I'm very glad, glad that these have been publicly acknowledged on the church's website with the kind of authority that that uh, implies, and not only implies, but states that there are these problem areas and there are ways of understanding them that can be compatible with faith. And so I see this as a enormously important resource for teenagers, for 10-year-olds who can click, do a Google search on Mormon and end up getting uh, barraged with these anti-Mormon websites that uh, use Mormon history as a, a sledgehammer to destroy faith. And uh, my only um, complaint is that this hasn't been available to Mormons in seminary class for decades. Right, right. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that the information is uh, didn't come out sooner. I guess is the is the what you're pointing to. Um, Right, but my attitude has been better never. Uh, pardon me, it's better right. late than never. And and the attitude of some who've been in charge has been better never. Better not to acknowledge these problems because acknowledging them undermines faith. And my argument, since I was a teenager and looking at these problems, um, including uh, changes in the text of the Book of Mormon that I was researching line by line with an 1830, uh, uh, or a photocopy of an 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon compared to modern editions, was that it was better to understand these things and, and talk about them with others who were concerned about them than to ignore them or to deny them. And uh, so I, I can only applaud what church headquarters has done in recent years with the various uh, position papers or whatever one wants to call them, these these articles that have come out under the auspices of church headquarters uh, that have been uh, fact-based, that have been based and, and referencing 
uh, scholarly uh, literature that deals with these issues. So I, I applaud this. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I've... I've worked with lots of members of the church who are having a hard time and having gone through kind of a faith crisis myself, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that for those members who really, really struggle over these things, it's really not the issues themselves. I mean, the, certainly that's what opens the door, but the reality is it's our, it's the lack of our community's validation of these as issues and, and then in a sense marginalizing those who are aware of them and who, who are taking the issues seriously. Um, that kind of marginalization is really what provides that angst that kind of puts a wedge between somebody in the church. Well, for those members of the church, and, and I think it's a significant percentage, for whom these issues are brand new, it's, you know, it's, it's disturbing to their sense of, of, um, all, you know, all is well in Zion to learn about this material. But it's far better that they learn about this and make readjustments in their faith perspective when given a, a, an honest and, and broadly based view of these from a faithful source, whether it's from an institute teacher or a BYU professor, uh, or a seminary teacher or from these articles on the church, um, website. It's far better that their, their their stability, so to speak, be shaken a little by learning about these problems within a faithful context than to be assaulted by them, as has been the case for generations of young people ever since the 70s, really, uh, by evangelicals who have used this information as, as a, uh, a weapon against Mormon faith, and to have no resource that is that they are familiar with, none from a seminary teacher, none from an institute teacher, none from church headquarters. And and then to conclude, because they have no no faithful resource that acknowledges these problems and deals in an in a direct way with them, to feel that they've been lied to. You can recover from a jolt of learning about the Adam God doctrine that Brigham Young taught for thirty years of his life or about plural marriage uh, that Joseph Smith practiced uh, during his life and in, in, involved sexual behavior with his plural wives, contrary to many of the myths that Mormon families have circulated and that Mormon Sunday school teachers have promoted and that even seminary teachers and institute teachers have promoted. Far better to learn about this from a faithful source than to be hit by it by an anti-Mormon evangelical Protestant source, and then to feel that because you never heard about this from your parents or your grandparents or your Sunday school teachers or your seminary teachers or your institute teachers or from church headquarters, to feel that you've been lied to. You can recover a jolt of learning new information. You can recover from that. It's very difficult to recover faith when you come to the conclusion that you've been yeah, lied amen. to. I, I want to bridge this back now to some of your own uh, research and scholarship. Um, your thoughts on on how your scholarship was perceived by church leadership as you discuss some of these same things that, that are covered in the essays or the Joseph Smith papers versus how the church is now tackling these issues and addressing the scholarship itself. Um, I guess essentially... <laughs> I, I want to get your reflections on how you feel about 
the way in which your research and scholarship was treated and now knowing that as we fast forward, the church is now tackling some of these same things uh, themselves in a, in a very public, transparent way? Well, I must say that there was not a united response among the general authorities to the kind of history that I spoke about and published um, from really at the beginning of my uh, my publishing. Um, one of the first articles I published was a revisionist article in the Ensign magazine uh, in 1973, uh, in December of 1973, that uh not only questioned, but affirmatively stated that uh, Edward Partridge was not the first presiding bishop of the church, that he had a local, a regional responsibility only over the, the Mormons in Missouri, he had no responsibility over Mormons throughout the church. Um, and that challenged traditional Mormon history, but was published by the the uh, Ensign magazine and uh Five months later, was translated into 14 different languages, as the ensign was published at that time in about that many languages. And so um, that was, uh, you know, not only approved; it was endorsed through official publication uh, by church headquarters. And so it it depended. It depended on the subject I was writing about. It depended on the individual general authorities who uh who uh, read these materials, whether they applauded them or didn't applaud them, whether they uh felt that uh this was a good idea or bad idea. Many of my revisionist publications once I became a member of of uh BYU's history department were published in BYU studies. And uh, uh the um controversies were there. I published about the history of the Perth Circle in BYU studies while while I was a BYU uh, historian. And shortly after uh, I published that, I was on a, I lived in Salt Lake while I was on the faculty at BYU. I never lived in Provo. And so for those 12 years I was on the faculty, I commuted from Salt Lake. And, and while in Salt Lake, I was a member of a high council and and shortly after the um, the um, article on the prayer circle was published by BYU Studies, I was sitting on the stand next to Gordon B. Hinckley, who at that time was a, a senior apostle in the, the Twelve. And I introduced myself to him. And uh, but I was this was in Salt Lake, and I was a high councilman making a, a visit to a ward where his son was the bishop, and and. He was, as an apostle, he was invited up on the stand, and I just introduced myself as uh, Michael Quinn and, and uh, President, uh, well, at the time he was Elder Hinckley, uh, said, are, are you the Michael Quinn who's on the faculty at BYU? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, you published a very interesting article about the prayer circle. And, you know, then our conversation went on to, you know, local things, and I asked how he was dealing with jet lag, and he went on for several minutes talking about how difficult it had been for all his years as a general authority dealing with jet lag. And I said he was spinning, and uh, his, you know he was hoping that he would not uh, mix his words up as he spoke. And he only said, I'm going to speak. I hope you take 
all the time you want to because I really don't want to speak more than a minute or two to the congregation after you address them, Brother Quinn. And so, you know, that, that I had that interaction with him about the prayer circle article. And uh, while I, one of my mentors uh, in religion generally was Marion D. Hanks, who uh, was a member of the president, presidency of the 70, and uh, he complimented me on the prayer circle article that I wrote, but I understood from uh, the Mormon grapevine that there were members of the 12 who were outraged that I had published that and outraged that BYU studies for publishing it. So it depended. It, you know, there was not a unified view of, of this, even in, within the 12, uh, about history. There were some who felt that, uh, it was all right for issues of controversy to be discussed in a faithful way. And there were those who felt that that was only giving ammunition to the, um, the uh, opponents of the church. And that these members of the 12, three or four of them, uh, adamantly opposed any, any publication of anything that could be considered controversial or, or, um, sensitive. And uh, so there was not, and uh, it depended on who you listened to or who you heard from uh, as to, um, the attitudes toward not only my work, but the work of of uh, Leonard Arrington and, and others trained by him who were members of his staff at this time while he, in 1978, when I published, he was still uh, operating in the out of the uh, headquarters of the church as church historian. Um, that changed. Uh, he was released as church historian shortly after, but um, it, it depended on general, which general authority you listened to and which was more persuasive to you. And in my view, I often had the the sympathetic ear of Gordon B. Hinckley and, and my uh, mission president, Marion uh, uh, D. Hanks, and I generally tended to listen more to them when I would get positive feedback from them. And I didn't pay as much attention to the other members of the 12 who I knew were opposed to the kinds of things I published. Yeah, it's interesting, right? So that... Whenever decisions are made or things happen or a certain approach seems to be coming out as the church's approach, it would be unfair to assume that that the majority or that even that the entire uh, Quorum of the Twelve or First Presidency all are comfortable or okay with with that direction, that there is some dissent, there is disagreement, there's not always unanimity you know, inside, but obviously... As far as I know, the Quorum of the Twelve is never asked to vote on any of these position papers uh, or articles that have been published on the church's website. But you can be damn sure or celestially sure that the first presidency approved every one of them. And that required a unanimous decision of the first president. But but was done without the 12. But as far as the 12 goes, right. that's another matter. Right. And so that makes it interesting because I think sometimes we see things happen. You know, we'll see... We'll see certain members who uh, it, it appears that the church as a whole is very uncomfortable with. And, of course, you experienced some of that, which I hope we can get to at some point here. But it, it would be unfair to assume that all 15 men unanimously at any one of these moments are 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 behind uh, any of these efforts, I guess. No, I and mean, sometimes they vote uh, in order to be unanimous against their personal feelings. 
and uh, and I, I in my own work I have uh, demonstrated from diaries of the general authorities themselves where this in fact was the case, uh, where some voted against their conscience in order to have a unanimous vote, which is a mandate of the Doctrine and Covenants, that things should be done by unanimous vote, but that has not always happened. Sometimes dissenting votes have postponed decisions uh, in the Quorum of the Twelve, and sometimes the the uh, president of the Quorum of the Twelve has asked for a revote and asked the dissenting voters to vote with the rest of the Twelve to make it unanimous. Um, and so their votes have been um, reluctant. Um, so not every decision of the of the uh, Quorum of the Twelve, although unanimous, indicates that everyone is is fully behind the decision. Yeah, and I think Leonard Arrington spoke about that to some extent as well. That that at times, if somebody in the group was very passionate about something, others would concede the point simply to to keep that uh, that unanimity. Um, I I do want to ask you. You wrote a book which I, I find to be a wonderful uh, work of scholarship, which is early Mormonism in the, the magic worldview. And it's this idea of Joseph and the treasure digging and uh, water divining and, and all that went into that. And yet through that book, I mean, you've always maintained this testimony of the restoration, this testimony of Joseph Smith as a prophet. I know a lot of members struggle with treasure digging and magic circles and and this, you know, the idea behind the seer stone and its its origin and what it was used for, and and just wanted to get maybe your thoughts on how you've been able to take this really complex issue that really could easily paint a picture of Joseph as being deceptive, and yet through all of that, you've uh, you've held Joseph Smith up as a prophet. Maybe speak about how you've done that. Well, um, when I first learned about these these claims of Joseph Smith as a Treasure digger. I, I adopted the view of, of uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was the one uh, whose was the first book I read about Mormon history, uh, Essentials in Church History, and that was to laugh at the claims. And uh, and then I read um, uh, a polemical work by uh, Hugh Nibley called No Man That That Is in History. And, uh, and again, he, he mocked all of these claims, uh, of Joseph Smith being involved in, in treasure digging and other things. And, and that was the view that I had until I was, uh, a member of the faculty at BYU. Um, I, I basically dismissed these claims because they just seemed so outlandish. And they were so contrary to what I understood as, as being religion. But then in, due to the, uh, the, uh, forgeries that, uh, had been produced in the early 80s that indicated that there was, uh, a, you know, evidence that seemed to be at the time, uh, handwriting experts said it was Joseph, uh, not Joseph Smith. Well, actually one of them was Joseph Smith. Uh, supposedly a, a, a letter, uh, and then the other was Martin Harris, and the experts were saying the paper is 19th century, and the experts were saying that the handwriting in that, uh, was Joseph Smith's or Martin Harris's. I was confronted with evidence that I had to somehow account for as a person who was known as a as an expert on Mormon history. I had students at BYU 
who were asking me about this stuff, and I had members of my ward in Salt Lake City who were asking me, and I was a member of the High Council, and then I was a member of the bishopric. Uh, and so I had a num- number of questions from people who had, a, you know, these questions were sincere. These were not questions that were ambush questions. These were sincere, heartfelt questions from people who really could not understand them, and I was no help because I, I didn't have anything other than Joseph Fielding Smith's answers, which was and Hugh Nibley's, which had been the traditional answers for decades to simply make light of these arguments. Well, the evidence of the early 1880s that was being promoted and published and and experts in handwriting and ink and and uh, paper were saying these are you know authentic. I had to somehow account for that, and so I began uh, doing my own research. And a part of that research was to look at the environment, which was my my um, training, was to look at the environment in which these occurred. And as I began reading the research by uh, Yale professor in particular, John, uh, 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 let's see, not England, I'm blanking out, on his, I'll remember it in a moment. But anyway, uh, he uh, he looked at early Mormon uh, experience within the context of early 19th century and 18th century uh, religious experience. And he, as a Yale professor of religion in early America, he found that these practices of treasure digging, of using divining rods, of astrology, of all of these things that we consider the occult sciences or we consider magic from our 20th and 21st century point of view, at least the views that I have been raised with and trained, that these were a part of the religious experience of early Americans. And uh, and so... Um, the the name of this Yale professor was Jonathan Butler, John Butler. And so I began reading other scholars of early American history from Harvard and other universities who were publishing articles and then publishing books about this early American environment in which religion and what we call, would consider superstition and the occult were intermingled. And the people who had these beliefs, who had these these practices saw them as a part of their Christianity and and practiced them as a part of their Christianity. And I began to see that Joseph Smith's family came out of that environment, and Joseph Smith himself lived in that environment. And I began to see this from a larger perspective. And then I began looking at material that I had ignored, material that I had even been shown artifacts by the church historian in 1979 uh, in his home. Uh, Eldred G. Smith showed me what he called a Kabbalistic document, which I couldn't make head or tails of. I had no idea what it meant. I knew what the Kabbalah was as a Jewish medieval system of, of mysticism and magic. And he said that this was a Kabbalistic document that his, that the first patriarch of the church, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. had, and that had been passed down to Hiram and 
to Hiram's son and to Hiram's grandson and ultimately to Elder G. Smith as being a part of the early Smith history. And I had no idea how any of this fit together. And so when Elder Smith showed me this in his home, he asked what I thought of, and I said, well, it's really very interesting. But what I was able to understand was what I next asked him to see, and that was the diary of his his ancestor, Iron Smith. Because I could understand diaries, um, but I had no way of understanding this parchment that he, with all these strange inscriptions on it that he showed to me. And so I had basically ignored material and evidence, including these artifacts that the church patriarch had shown me. I had ignored them because I just simply couldn't understand them. But in in 1985, as I began in in uh, that year, began looking at these from the perspective of these his, historians who were looking at early America, one light bulb after another began going on. And and I, I began putting into context of what I was reading from John Butler and others about early America generally and the Smith family. I began putting these things in and I saw them as being a part of the same environment, the same issue. And that uh, just like Joseph Fielding Smith had laughed about these claims about Joseph Smith and the Smith family, Early American historians of religion had for decades laughed at the uh, evidences of, of treasure digging and and uh, um, of belief in astrology that had been a part of early America, and they just had ignored it and dismissed it as superstition and had not understood it as being a part, uh, a significant part of the religious life of early Americans. And uh, and so that's how I came very quickly once I started doing research into this to understand Joseph Smith's background, and that's what I presented in the book. Beautiful. I, I want to follow up with another question about this kind of magic worldview. Uh, one of the listeners asked if I would would petition you to to talk a little more about what revelatory walking sticks are, what what they are, who used them, and, and maybe how they were used, because I think you mentioned that perhaps in that book. Yeah, um, and we know less about that than we know about um, things like divining rods. Uh, divining rods uh, usually were, were split rods, often made out of, of hazel, but uh and, and when I say hazel hazel tree um and that uh a person would hold and uh usually they were split in, in a y shape or they were had grown uh, as twigs in a y shape, and so that uh the person who used them held uh the two arms of the y and then the projecting tail of the y um would direct them they 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 believed to things they were looking for uh and that could be buried treasure it could be water it could be lost item it could be stolen item but also that a divining rod was not only called a divining rod because it could direct to material things it was also used and had been used for hundreds of years if not longer uh as what we call the you know the the three prong or three um, twig 
divining rod for answering religious questions in a yes or no manner. And if the rod moved, you know, the divining rod, instead of moving down to point to something buried in the ground or whatever, the movement indicated a yes answer to a, a, a religious question. And the lack of movement meant no. And again, those who used the divining rods in that manner saw this as a divine instrument. That's why they were called divining rods, because they saw it as a an expression of divine force, of divine revelation, if you will. Well, even older than the, the three-prong, if you want to call it, divining rod was the use of sticks, of staffs, going back to thousands of years to do the same thing, to reveal truth. And uh, and that was somehow sometimes used as you threw the staff down on the ground. The direction in which it fell uh, would indicate either a yes or a no answer. And so typically the person seeking a rod, whether it was a straight rod or a straight stick or whether it was the three-prong one, they came to uh, use it as a method of revelation on yes-no or questions that were susceptible or were amenable to a yes-no answer. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Depending on how the person phrased the question. And so um, Hebrew C. Kimball in his diary, for example, frequently uh, recorded praying by the rod and receiving answers by the rod. And the the questions seemed to be yes-no questions. He would typically record the answer and would record the question. But the answers seemed to be in response to yes-no questions. Should I go here? Should I do this? And, uh, And that was a typical approach that was used in divining uh, for with rods, and so that's how the revelatory rods were used. And with uh, with um, someone like uh, Apostle, and Hebrew C. Kimball was an apostle under Joseph Smith, and after um, his death, he became a counselor to Brigham Young. Another apostle under Joseph Smith's presidency was Willard Richards, and he had cane that he used for healing, not so much for revelation, but to heal people. And uh, and he in particular had a, a black cane that he used, and that is uh, with several of his other canes. But that black cane is uh, on display in the um, in the uh, Daughters of Utah Pioneers Museum. So anyway, that would be my answer to the question you have from one of your pod viewers. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I remember, of course, we, we learned right early in our, our kind of simple grasp of church history that Joseph Smith and his father are digging wells for families in the area to, to bring in more income to the family as they're trying to meet the mortgage of the property that they've purchased. And yet it just struck me maybe four or five years ago as I'm beginning to learn about treasure digging and divining rods and, and this kind of magic that, uh, that we would look back and kind of use that label that the that the Joseph Smith family is using, it becomes, I don't know that there's 
perfect evidence of this, but it becomes at least obvious to me that more than likely, right? I mean, you, we don't have the tools that we have today to locate these things, and you don't want to dig a giant hole unless you're pretty sure you know where water is. And so it only makes sense that whoever the folks are that are digging wells in the area, they have a knack for finding water, and more than likely that's through the use of some tool like these, right? Right. And and typically, um, there was a perception that that it was a divine process by which you found these things, that it was a divine process by which you found a uh, a piece of uh, tree that had grown in a Y shape, uh, and that, that it was a gift to you to use it. Not everyone could use that gift, and that you were led in a divine way to find that that dividing rod. Like, similarly, um, people didn't generally uh, go digging in the ground to find stone. Typically, they felt that they had been led to just to stumble on them. And sometimes that was by walking in a, in a stream. And as you're walking in a stream, seeing a rock that seems unusual and picking it up, and you have stumbled across uh, a stone that becomes a seer stone. And with Joseph Smith and the seer stone that he used to um, to uh, translate the Book of Mormon, the brown seer stone, he found it while digging that well. Um, it was an accidental discovery. And typically it had to do with the sheen of the, or the shape of the stone that caught their attention. And, and then through... Um, initially being attracted to the stone for some reason because of its surface appearance or because of its shape, then the person discovered that it had uh, this um, divinity of of communicating with the person. And again, not everyone had that ability. And it, so it was a it was a multiple kind of of layered belief system that it was a an instrument whether it was a piece of wood or a piece of stone that could be the means of revealing something divine, but that the person who used it also had a gift and that it wasn't always every single person who came across it. And so whether it was a divining rod or a walking stick or a uh, a uh, piece of, of, of um, smooth, polished, and usually it was polished, Naturally, but sometimes it was polished in uh, in a um, in a intentional way. Some of the seer stones are flat and have two holes in them, and those are uh, typically manufactured by native peoples uh, in the Northeast uh, as gorgets, which were uh, worn in in wartime to protect the neck, and that's why they had the two holes toward the the center. That, that a twine or whatever was used to to put these against the neck to protect the neck against the strike of a, of a weapon. And then those were found hundreds of years later in mounds or in waterways where they had uh, been loosened and somebody came across them, saw their design, regarded them as, as special, and then began seeing or feeling that these had qualities that were divine and that could lead them to knowledge that uh, was totally separate from their original use when they were 
polished and fashioned by native people hundreds of years earlier. So however one stumbled across, and usually it was a manner of stumbling across rather than intentionally looking for something, uh, the person who felt that he or she had that gift uh, would then um, use that gift and uh, sometimes totally free of charge. But again, these were poor people struggling in a, uh, in a um, very often a hand-to-mouth society in terms of subsistence, barely getting along. They, they would accept uh, the uh, gift that someone might give them of food or of uh, a, a barter kind of, of gift. And then sometimes that became money. Um, but from the outside, people looking at that who didn't believe in that worldview saw it only as fraud. And so very early there were laws in most of the states against using these methods of divination. So you had a, a complex early American society in which you had both those who believed in these um, material objects of revelation and those who disbelieved them and enough even to criminalize them. Hmm. Interesting. I uh, I want to kind of play off this idea. We asked if you would reconcile kind of this this magical worldview that Joseph is living in with with your testimony that that these things are that you know that Joseph is a prophet that the restoration is is ac- you know is an accurate thing that occurred. Uh, I want to kind of take that off another step. One of the things that you've maintained is a, a literal view of of the gold plates and uh, and of the angel Moroni and perhaps right. maybe your thoughts on on what evidence you see or or what it is that specifically about that story that you that you you seem to hold on to that literal view and and I do too but there are a lot of listeners to this podcast who feel like they just they just wish the church would go to this figurative or allegorical type of paradigm so that so that they could hang on and, and I certainly want to give them room and flexibility but I want to at least have you share with them how you've reconciled these things as literal so that maybe they can see some room to come back that direction. Okay, in doing that, I'd like to start with an after uh, thought about the earlier line of inquiry, and that is why Joseph Smith, even in Nauvoo, he was finding seer stones in Nauvoo, according to Brigham Young himself, uh, and, uh, and declaring that these seer stones had ability, and he found them by the Mississippi River in Nauvoo. Um, if you look at the uh, 13th Article of Faith, written by Joseph Smith in Midway in the Nauvoo Experience in 1842, he says there that, that Mormons believe, and that obviously he believed, in accepting what was true from any source. Now, that was his philosophy of religion as he expressed it when a newspaper editor, Wentworth, asked him to write out the beliefs of Mormons, and he said, we believe. But these were obviously his beliefs as well. And you, if you project that backward in time, as a young man, he believed in accepting truth from whatever source it came from, just as he expressed it later uh, in the Wentworth letter. And if he felt that there was truth to be found from through a serious seer stone or through a divining rod. Uh, remember his comment that 
one way he tested things that were new to him is does it taste right spiritually? And of course, he used a, a physical uh, analog to that. But does it resonate to me as an individual as something that's true? And if so, then if it tastes good, if it tastes true, and you find that in the Book of Mormon as well, 18 going back to 1829, uh, in the dictation that he made of the English words of the Book of Mormon, you have that, that same uh, phrasing of taste and connection with truth and in connection with revelation. Joseph Smith believed in accepting truth from whatever source. And so that's another way of explaining the seer stones uh, and the divining rods and the other means of revelation and the healing handkerchiefs and the these physical, humanly created in some sense, uh, and in some cases, uh, specifically humanly created, uh, in others, just natural objects that he and others felt were a source of truth. And that's very consistent with the 13th article of faith. And it's very consistent with what he said uh, over the pulpit of how he determined truth. Does it taste good? And of course, he's not talking about the taste of sour, sweet, and, and bitter. He's talking about a religious perception, a spiritual perception. And so I think that's another way of seeing this as a part of a worldview that he had, a spiritual worldview, that he accepted truth from whatever source. And one of his apostles during his lifetime, John Taylor, put it even more bluntly when he was an apostle in Utah and president of the church. He said, I accept truth from whatever source, from hell itself. If Satan has truth, I accept it. Doesn't mean I accept Satan. But he accepted and, and said in a very stark way that there was no limit to the source of truth that John Taylor would accept. And I think that was because of his training by Joseph Smith, who saw no limit on the sources of truth and would accept it from any, any source. And you find that in the 13th Article of Faith. Now, going to your question of the Book of Mormon. Um, I believe that there were gold plates, yes. I believe in the angel Moroni, yes, whether you call him Moroni or whether you call him uh, Alma or whether you call him Nephi, there were various words that people had. And when you have an overwhelming experience, as it was for Joseph Smith to see an angel, um, an overwhelming, uh, what um, academics often call metaphysical experience, something beyond the physical. Your words to describe it are going to be inadequate. And uh, people frequently struggle for a vocabulary to describe these words, whether you're a medieval mystic describing your interactions and your revelatory experiences with God, or whether you're Joseph Smith or whether you're uh, somebody who has a, a metaphysical or a charismatic experience. Describing it is difficult, and so Joseph Smith described his first, first vision in very ways. In various ways, he sometimes identified this angel as Nephi. He sometimes identified him as Moroni. I don't see that as significant. That he had, and I see what is as significant as what he described as this charismatic, powerfully metaphysical experience, and I don't disbelieve the intensity of, of 
what he had as as an experience. Um, the way he described it, whether it's the Angel Moroni visitation or the uh, the overwhelming experience of a theophany, varied from time to time. The words he used, the way he described it, varied, and uh, I, that I think is consistent with with. Uh, Evangelical, and I use that in a positive sense, even though I frequently use evangelical in a negative sense because I think Protestants have corrupted the whole meaning of evangelical. But nonetheless, what you look at at is a charismatic or a metaphysical or an evangelical experience of Paul the Apostle. At one point, Paul says of his experience on the road to Damascus, I saw a light but heard no voice. And another time, he, he says, I heard a voice, but saw no light. Well, that's an utter contradiction in Scripture, in the words of the man who had the same experience as he's describing his experience. I just think that you have to acknowledge that when people are talking about an overwhelming experience that they have, and for Paul, it was overwhelming. It changed his life from being a dyed-in-the-wool uh, word of every every jot and tittle of the Hebrew text to being one who saw the gospel in expansive terms. It changed his life forever. Well, he described that experience on the road to Damascus in contradictory ways. That isn't for me a reason to disbelieve that he had this overwhelming experience. And so it, because there is the same person, Joseph Smith, had different ways of describing the first vision or different ways of referring to the Moroni experience, that doesn't cause me to doubt the experience. I accept the the experience of many people out, outside. I, 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 I don't, there is no limit to, to God's revelation. And so whether, uh, Brigham Young said that the, and he used a, uh, a common word at the time for Africans, who he regarded as the lowest culturally uh, expressed humanity in the world. He called them Hottentots. And he said the Hottentots of Africa have prophets, and their prophets have real revelations. But those are the revelations for them. And we have revelations of the latter days through Joseph Smith for us. And we have our set of prophets. And, jo- and Brigham Young didn't diminish the the truthfulness of the hot and taught prophets who he saw as the the most uh, culturally deprived people of the of humanity but, so i i accept whether it's the revelation of the uh, of mary to juan diego in mexico at the time of the uh, or very close to the time of the conquest or whether it's joan of arc or whether it's um, Bernard of Clairvaux and his words, which are still in the Mormon hymn, uh, the uh, the the uh, uh, hymn of uh, that he wrote back in in about 1300, 1200, uh, as a mystic who had this oneness that he describes uh, as the burning of his bosom. Well, I had that as a child, and I was stunned when I read it in in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, because at first I thought it was just me. And then when I read it in the Doctrine and Covenants, 
about the burning of the, the bosom, I thought, well, everyone has. Well, then I found out, no, not everyone who who believes earnestly in God does have that experience. But it was an experience I had, and it was one that made me feel one with Bernard of Claveau and one with uh, Hildegard uh, of, of uh, let's see, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, another medieval yeah, mystic, or Joan of Arc. And I have not had the visionary experiences they had, but I, I did have that mystical union with God where I felt I was one with him and felt that I could disappear in his presence. I've had those experiences. I haven't had the visual ones. I haven't had uh, that kind of, of revelatory experience. But because of the experiences I have had, I don't doubt uh, the the uh, intense um revelatory experiences of others. But I'm enough of a rationalist to know that there are people in in, uh, in mental facilities or people who are on antipsychotic drugs who have seen Jesus and who have been told by Jesus things. I, I, I know that. And I know that there are frauds and charlatans who have claimed these same kinds of gifts. But the insanity of some and the deceptions of some does not invalidate the reality of others. And so I, I'm enough of a rationalist to look at my own experiences and say, yeah, there could be a Freudian interpretation of my intense experiences, but that's not how I regard them. I acknowledge that there is the possibility that I've deceived myself. I acknowledge the possibility that Joseph Smith could have deceived himself. I acknowledge the possibility that atheists could be right and that I won't be waking up after my heart stops. But that's not my, my view. That's not my worldview. I have, despite my, my uh, intense rationality and my acceptance of the, the reality that the atheistic view could be true, the uh, Freudian view of visions, of all visions, could be true. The mental synapse interpretation of, of visions and of near-death experiences and of the voices, uh, of, you know, of, of inspiration, whether they're inward or whether they're audible, those could also be true. It's just that I don't believe they apply in every case. So I, I accept the, I accept the Joseph Smith visions. I accept the Angel Moroni. I accept the gold plates, but I also cannot deny that there are evidences of the 19th century in the English text of the Book of Mormon, and that's only what the trans the the English uh, translation or the English definition rather of translation would have expected, because the the you know, the what's now called the um, Encyclopedia Britannica. Its first edition in, in the United States in 1798 said that translation was, was the translator putting a text into the understandable message of the translator. For the translator to bring his or her, but it usually was patriarchy, it said the translator into his language, into his understanding of the text and the meaning of the text. And so for Joseph Smith to draw on, on the language of the revivals, for him to draw on the language of the Old Testament, both of which he was intimately 
are familiar with and had been since childhood. That's not a surprise to me. Uh, when, and when I s- expressed this at a uh, uh, after uh, Sunstone Symposium gathering in, a, in the Hotel Utah in 1985, an a anthropologist Mormon who had become a, a disbeliever in Book of Mormon and all, he said, well, what percentage of the current text of the Book of Mormon is 19th century, and what percentage do you believe came from a, an original Urtext, and I was using the German word he did as well, the Urtext, the original text of these gold plates. And I said, I can't tell you the percentage. I know that there's a, a certain amount of it that I can clearly see as 19th century, but I can't tell you what is from the Urtext because I would have to have the Urtext in front of me and be able to read it, which I couldn't do. And uh, and so I can't, you know, it's not just that I don't have the gold place. I don't have the ability to assess the Urtext, but I believe there was an Urtext. And so I can't say what percentage of the of the Book of Mormon is 19th century and what percent is Urtext. It's just that I believe uh, in, in, in my rational as well as my spiritual depth that there is a portion of the Book of Mormon that relates to a, on, uh, what was written on gold plates, and that is an urtext. And, and I express the absence of so many things that we know from Mesoamerican uh, uh, archaeological search that, uh, you know, there, there are these millions of people who were there uh, when the Nephites uh, and Lamanites were flourishing that are not mentioned, and I, I, I explained that in, a, in an uh, essay I wrote for, Dia, uh, for Ed Sunstone in 2005, that I had long regarded the Book of Mormon as a tribal narrative, and like the other tribal narratives of, of the world, including the Hebrew Bible, they didn't talk about anybody, uh, no one was important to them unless they interacted with the tribe. And, and when they were not interacting with the tribe, they did not exist. And so that the Book of Mormon as a tribal narrative began telling this history of a smaller and smaller group of people, the people who were keeping the record. So uh, everyone else was unimportant, did not exist as far as the tribal record was concerned. So the millions of people who were already on the north and south and central uh, hemispheres uh, and the isthmus and, and everything above and everything below were unimportant to the record keepers of this tribal narrative. The only thing of importance to them was their tribe. That's how I see the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and that's and that's beautiful. I mean, you mentioned this, you know, the hot and taut revelation uh, that Brigham Young had talked about. And and just this past weekend, I went to Las Vegas to to speak to a group of Latter-day Saints who were struggling with faith and wanted to kind of do a Q&A and, and, and ask me how I put things together. And I went to church with the, the host family, the family that, that kept us at their home and, and, uh, and, you know, helped us out while we were in Las Vegas, went to church with them on Sunday. And, and we're in the Sunday lesson on, in priesthood, and there's this discussion of what does it mean to, to be the true and living church. And, and I shared this idea, right? We have Orson F. Whitney on the record who says that God's using other people besides the Latter-day Saints to accomplish his work. And, and, and he even uses the term, he says, it would be fair to say that these people are among its auxiliaries. And I think when we begin to 
have that expansive view to see that that Mormonism is one vehicle that God is using to bring his children home, but that there are people who are, and, and I don't know that conservative Mormons like this term, but that there are people who are called and authorized outside of our church by God to do some kind of divine work to those that they have influence with, those within the within the realm that they can encourage and help and uplift and point them back to Christ or point them back to goodness. And and I think that's exactly what you're speaking at there. Uh, so I thought that was a really a really good point that you made. And I love the way you frame how you hang on to these things and reconcile them, but at the same time validate that you could be wrong. And I think that goes a long way in building trust. And that's something I think you've been very good at throughout your life is is getting those who are struggling to to just kind of slow down and, and realize that, hey, you know, it could be wrong about this, but this is what my life experience tells me. And I, I think you framed that really well. Obviously, your story is impacted at many twists and turns by your own sexual orientation. But And we'll get to that in a moment. But kind of playing off of that initial thought, I wanted to get your thoughts on the LGBT issues within the church and specifically maybe how we as a Mormon people can do more, but but really how we can do better uh, in this area. Well, I gave a talk uh, at Sunstone, and, you know, I don't think, you know, everything shouldn't be about me, but you're asking about me. And so I'll talk about things I've said and things I've written and things I've published. But I, I gave a talk on a panel uh, at Sunstone around 2012, I think, about what the LDS Church can do for people like me uh, and things that would be consistent with the Scriptures and consistent with the, the Mormon faith that the Church could do as policies, things that would not require new revelation to do, and that would make life easier, that would reduce the suicides of young men. And believe me, they are high. Uh, of young men in particular who feel stressed about feeling sexually attracted to their their teenage friends who themselves are maybe 13, 14, 15 or who are attracted to older people, older guys. But it's same-sex attraction and it is a part of who they fundamentally see themselves as and yet they don't they don't know how to reconcile with Mormonism. And the way they reconcile it is by suicide. And my son committed suicide for different reasons. He was not mentally the way other people were, and he finally gave up trying to be, trying to fit, uh, where he felt like he was, had utterly no one on earth who was like him. And so at 21, he committed suicide. And I was contacted at the time by a woman who was on a special, uh, uh, task force from the state, and uh, she contacted me as being listed in, in the newspaper as the uh, father of, of Adam Quinn, who had committed suicide, and, and she was um, conducting research among the families, the survivors of those between the ages of 12 and 22 who had committed suicide at enormous rates in terms of the population of Utah. And she wanted me to know, you know, she wanted to learn from me about my perceptions about why my son committed suicide. Well, I told her about his mental issues and that 
this was what eventually he could not resolve and that for him the tragedy was not suicide for him the tragedy had been his whole life and that was how i regarded it that he'd been told ever since he was old enough to understand the words that there was something wrong with him and that he wasn't fitting in and why can't you fit in and why can't you see the world and do things as other people did and by the time he was 21 he figured he had tried and tried and there was nothing he could do and he decided to resolve it the only way that he felt he could and so he committed suicide and I said I my perception is that that is not the case with yours my son was an outsider and everyone who interacted with him felt that there was something wrong with him I said and I told her that I had been suicidal since I was 12 and it was because I was homosexually oriented and I defined myself at 12 as a homosexual and I said let me describe for you the characteristics of what I think almost all of these young men that you're looking at will, will fit. They were the best boys in the world to their families. Their families saw them as, as the best, the best behaved, the, the, not the troublemakers, the ones who did everything right, the peacemakers within their family. Their bishops and their, their Sunday school teachers saw them as the most spiritual people in the ward, the most, the, the best little boys in the ward, the best members of the deacon's quorum, the best members of the priest's quorum, the best members of the teachers and the priests and then of the elders' quorum if they lived that long. Their school friends saw them as the most popular boys in school, as the ones who everyone looked up to. They were the either the, the best athletes or they were the school leaders in in speech and drama or they were the the school officers their girlfriends thought that they were the best dancers they were they were the most attentive to their girlfriends and when they committed suicide they left no note and no one not their family not their friends not their enemies if they had any no one can understand why they committed suicide. And I said, these boys could not live in Mormon culture feeling the sexual attraction that they did for their friends. And, and I said, that's what I think you will find in all of these cases or in most of these cases that you are looking at. And there was a long silence on the phone. And I said, are you still there? And she said, you have just described for me everyone that I have looked at and asked the families and friends of, of these boys from the ages of 13 to 22 who've committed suicide in the last five years in Utah. You've described every one of them. So the church can do a lot. And, and I, and this has been, this was, uh, online. I don't do anything online aside from I, I read, I read newspapers online, I email, but I don't, I don't belong to any networking sites. I'm a, a cyber caveman. But somebody asked me at Sunstone if they could put online, and I think they put it online for Mormons for Marriage, and it was up there from about 19, or pardon me, 2012. May still be there now. But it was this talk that I gave, uh, on things that the church could do, and these things, do not require new revelation. They do not 
dispute or or under undermine in any way the the um the doctrines and the values of the church, but they would make life easier, make life bearable, make life hopeful for these kids who, if they didn't commit suicide like the ones in that study, and this was in 1996 when this woman contacted me, but they would, they could help these people like me who have never committed suicide but have thought of all the ways of doing it. And they could help people like John Gustav Rathel, who was one of my students at BYU, who I didn't know at the time, you know, because I was so in the closet that I might have been able to help not attempt suicide as he did, because he could not reconcile his homosexual feelings with being Mormon as a return missionary. And he has written about this and published it, and that's why I can name him, because he's wanted others to learn from his experience and to maybe not attempt, make the attempt. I never made the attempt. I thought of every way conceivable of committing suicide in a way that would not be understood as the reason why I really committed it. I would never have left him a note. That's why I knew that that's, and I've talked to many others who made the effort and they did not leave notes because they, the last thing in the world they wanted was for their parents to blame themselves for their homosexuality, for their girlfriend to know that when he kissed her, he was thinking of some of a male, of his boyfriend, to, to, to make his straight friends, who were boys, who were boyfriends, know that he thought of them sexually. To, to, and all, all the people in the ward never leave a note. Or if they left a note, left a note that would only say, this is not your fault, it's me. Um, so... The church can do a great deal to reach out and save these young men. And it's young women, too, but on the young women are not regarded by the society at large as sexual beings. And they are. And they have these feelings as much as young men, too, not at the, not the same percentages. But they, when the women feel them, when the young girls feel them, when the teenage girls feel them, they are just as intense. But they do not feel the pressures of conformity and of scruple and of homophobia the way young men do. And that's why the suicide rate is enormous for young males between the ages of 12 and 22, actually. Beyond that, um, people into their 30s are committing suicide because they cannot continue to deal with their homosexuality. And it's primarily males. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go over everything I, I suggested. But the one thing that I would say that the church could do and that would not violate is for at least one member of the Quorum of the Twelve, every general conference, to tell every parent in every country of the world who is Mormon not to kick their kids out when they find out that their kids are gay or lesbian, but instead to accept them as members of the of the home as they have always been and to love them because Many members of the church, devout members, have kicked their kids out on the streets, and the vast majority of Mormon kids on the streets are gay and lesbian, and that and it's true in Utah. Yet, yet for some reason, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hash this out and have any part of this podcast come off as overly critical, but but for some reason that that message is not present. I mean, there. I know, right? I mean, I know it isn't. And that's why, and that's something that the church leadership could do out of compassion, out of empathy, and 
They haven't. And even some of the uh, members of the 12 who I have known over the years have had sons who were homosexual, have not given that message, and then have instead have church security following their sons, trying to keep them out of gay bars and by intimidation of being followed. Um, no, they have not given that message, and they have not done what they could within church standards and within church doctrine to make these young men and young women, but it's very rare, almost non-existent, for a young woman who admits to feeling same-sex attraction to be kicked out of her home by her family. It's very common, and I have met many of them, to be kicked out of their homes when they're teenage boys and end up on the streets. And through surveys that have been done by, by social outreach organizations, it is not an exaggeration. It is a fact that more than half of the teenage boys who are living on the streets in Utah are living there because they've been kicked out of their homes by their goody-two-shoe Mormon families because those Mormon families felt that they could not abide having a homosexual living in the home. And the general authorities could, ju could change that by at least one general authority, every conference, giving that message. And they have not done it, and I hold them responsible for many of those kids being on the street, for many of them turning to prostitution, for many of them being beaten up by homophobes, for many of them being killed by homophobes, and for many of the suicides of teenage males uh, in Mormon homes who don't leave notes or who leave notes saying this is not your fault to your parents, this is me. I hold the first president of CM12 responsible for not doing what they could do within church doctrine to prevent that. Yeah. Now, this issue, uh, Michael, this issue is heart-wrenching for me. And, and I'll go even further, and I'll say that while that message is not present, there's another message which is present that's never been disavowed, and, and that is I, I did an episode recently where I talk about a uh, First Presidency message in the Enzyme from Marion G. Romney where he talks about going on his mission and he says, you know, my dad looked at me right before I got on the train and said, we love you. We want you back into our family. You know, we want you to be a part of our home again when your mission's over. But, uh, it would be better that you came home in a coffin than you have coming, that you come home having lost your virtue. And, That's right. Right. Yeah. And that message is crushing. It is, it is a disastrous message that has been given to young men. And then they wonder why young men on missions have committed suicide. They wonder why young men on missions have nervous breakdowns. The pressure of a mission is overwhelming. It increases the pressure that teenage Mormons feel before the age of 19, now before the age of 18, overwhelmingly. And anyone who's been on a mission knows what I'm talking about. Just the pressures are enormous of all kinds of pressures. But the pressure to be celibate on a mission is a burden for everybody. It's a burden for young women. It's a burden for young men. And and the pressure of being in that close communication for young men who are homosexually attracted and they're, they're in a relationship has, which has continually been compared to marriage because they are with their companion 24 hours a day without letting up for that two-year period the 
The pressures on homosexually oriented young males are overwhelming. And to be told whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, that your family would rather have you home in a wooden box, is absolutely anti-Christian. It is not, it is not looking at the welfare and benefit of the loved teenager. It is not a message of love. It's, it's, it's to protect the feelings of the parents. That's all it's designed to do. It is utterly selfish. It is utterly anti-Christian to give that message out. And yet it is a message that has been uttered by parents for generations in Mormon church and been praised by general authorities like, like, uh, Marin G. Romney, who have just been oblivious to the damage that that message causes to people. And instead of the message that, you know, of Jesus to the adulterous women, go and, and, and sin no more. Where you're con, you know, where are those who condemn you? Where are your accusers? I say to you, go and, and instead of emphasizing that message, we emphasize the message of nails in, in a tree, or I'd rather have you come home in a box than come home uh, disgraced from your mission. And uh, I think we have our, as a people, as a culture, we have our, our attitudes toward morality and immorality and repentance totally upside down from what the message is that Jesus gave and that we read in the scriptures and somehow put on the shelves when we talk to our, our kids um, or when we talk to congregations. So I, I have many reasons why I feel that the, the, the priorities of church headquarters are not the priorities of Jesus. Yeah. And, and I'll, and I'll just second that to the extent that, uh, I think one of the biggest cultural and institutional flaws that we have is, is this reluctance to ever diminish the influence that a leader has by disagreeing with them. And in the effort for the top 15 to not do that to each other or to past leaders who are now deceased and gone, there's this reluctance to ever disavow specifically anything that any leader in the past has said. And, uh, you know, Elder McConkie, when the 78 revelation came out and he said, you know, forget everything I said, forget everything Brigham Young said, that type of a statement is an absolute rarity. In fact, that might be the only one within Mormonism, with the exception of the, the recent race uh, essay that came out that somewhat tries to point this racism at Brigham Young and disavows the theories. But, right. but what it doesn't do is talk about all the leaders in the 1940s that on the written record taught that these theories were doctrine. And, and, right. and said, hey, you know what? You, since uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson, for instance, and telling him, you know, hey, get with the program. These things are doctrinal. Interracial marriage is sin, and and blacks being right. less valiant is doctrine, and and we're just gonna have to come to grips with that. Only to have today say that, hey, sorry, but those were disavowed theories. I I wish in Mormonism we were we were more easily convinced that to go back and say, hey, you know, we love Elder Romney. He's done a lot of good. But this statement he made is false, and, and we disavow it. And I think right. Well, there there were a few apostles of uh, when I was growing up, and when I was a young man, and when I was in middle age that I loved more than Legrand Richard. His daughter was our my bishop's uh, wife, and I saw him frequently, and I grew up with his grandchildren. I utterly loved Legrand Richards, and yet Legrand Richards gave a talk at BYU while I was there as a student telling BYU students that if they kissed their boyfriend or girlfriend 
before marriage, they were licking the butter off someone else's bread and then handing it to them. And I just regard that as monstrous, absolutely monstrous to say that, to believe that. But that's obviously what he believed, and it's certainly what he said. And the sense of guilt that that, that gave to the normal expression of affection between young men, whether it's a peck on the cheek or deep kissing, I do not believe that that is what you're doing as an unmarried person. Uh, when it expresses the uh, love and affection you have for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or for a same-sex friend. Um, but that's what he said. And and as much and dearly as I love Spencer W. Kimball and shared dinners and breakfasts at, the, at their dinner table with, with Spencer and Camilla Kimball in their home, I think he created generations of unhappy marriages by counseling since 1949 and by publishing since 1969, the encouragement for homosexually oriented young men just to force themselves, and he used that word, force themselves to date women, to get married and have children. Uh, as much as I love President Kimball, I think he bears responsibility for generations of, of distraught women who deserved heterosexual husbands, not homosexual husbands who were forcing themselves to date women, get married, and have children. And so we have to recognize the the humanity that is a, is a part of even the most beloved, even the most divinely inspired prophet, seer, and revelator. They never cease to be human. They never cease to mistake, to make mistakes. And according to the New Testament, they never cease to sin. Everyone sins in large ways and in small ways throughout life, whether you are a nine-year-old or whether you are a 90-year-old, a prophet, seer, and revelator, everyone sins. And we, we have to accept that. And we have to accept that in the prophets that we love and admire and whose, whose words we listen to, they make mistakes. They sin against their own callings at times. And they sin against other people by ignorance, by prejudice, by ill-thought comments. These things are just a part of life. They're a part of being in the damn human race, as, as uh, Mark Twain called us. And I, I find no reason to argue with him about that. We are the damned human race. And we're damned both in the Protestant sense and in the Mormon sense. We're damned in that we do suffer for our sins. And we're damned in the Mormon sense in that we, by our sins, we don't damn ourselves to eternal hell, but we limit ourselves. We limit what we can do for others. We're damned in both those senses as a part of the damned human race. And so I, I really, I, I repeat that often because I, I really, really believe that is, you know, that if, 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 um, if, um, Mark Twain was inspired in anything. He was inspired in using that phrase. And he was inspired as a diehard Southerner who grew up in, in slave society riding the adventures of, uh, of Huckleberry Finn because of its views of race. So he was, he was, he was a prophet in his own right, in his own way. He had his limitations, certainly. But, uh, David O. McKay, whom I loved, had his. Spencer W. Kimball, dearly loved had his, and that I condemn him for. 
and Richard and, uh, and uh, Legrand Richards had his that I certainly criticize him for. I don't condemn him in the way I do condemn a man I love more than I can even express, and that's Spencer Kimball. But I condemn his well-intentioned misleading of men and women into all these generations of unhappy marriages um, that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't demanded that they happen. Um, so, you know, I mean, we just have to accept that this humanity is, is something we will never escape. No prophet will escape. Joseph Smith won't escape. Never escaped. It's a part of who we are, but the revelatory inspiration, the goodness that we can do through God's gifts to us and through our own better angels, you know, we can't deny that either, and I don't deny that. But, you know, they're all a part of the story, and it's when we try to emphasize only the, the perfection, only the inspiration, only the the, the revelatory um, truths, and we don't look at the human mistakes, sins, realities of the past and the present, that we deceive ourselves and that we set people up for devastating disappointment that sometimes their faith cannot endure. Beautiful comments. I want to ask you one more LGBT question generally, and that is um, I know that you've done some scholarship on the idea of, of same gender sexuality within Mormonism early in history. Uh, do you still hold the view that same-sex relationships were at worst tolerated uh, in early LDS history? And if so, I guess just maybe the, the, the one piece of strongest evidence uh, singular evidence you see that uh, substantiates that view? Well, I can do it even later than the early... I can do it as late as the 1950s. Uh, Stephen L. Richards, as a member of the First Presidency, a mission president in California, called him and said that a missionary there had been arrested for uh, for uh, fondling the genitals of uh, teenage boys. And, uh, and was facing criminal charges. And the mission president called the first presidency and spoke to, to, uh, uh, Stephen L. Richards, the first counselor, because he wanted to excommunicate the missionary. And president, uh, and the transcription of this, Stephen L. Richards recorded the transcription of the, of the phone conversation. And I read it. And I quoted it in, in the, uh, or I paraphrase, maybe not quoted it, but I at least paraphrased it in the book I published. Uh, Stephen L. Richards asked only one question. Was there actual penetration of these boys by this missionary? And the mission president said, no, he just fondled them. And Stephen L. Richards, in his response, said, well, that's just a, uh, a, a minor, a minor sin on that part. Do not excommunicate him, but send him home dishonorably from his mission. Of course, police were going to do what they did in the justice system, and I don't know what happened. But that was his response. J. Reuben Clark, who was hell on wheels about sexual misbehavior, a few years before that, late 1940s, as a member of the First Presidency, was asked about a teacher uh, at uh, Ricks College who had been engaged in homosexual behavior for years and have been found out, and uh, was asked two questions. Uh, should we fire him, and should we excommunicate him? And 
um, J. Reuben Clark said, definitely fire him. He cannot be on the remain on the faculty of Brigham Young University any longer. Or not Brigham Young, it was Ricks College at that time. Ricks College any longer. He cannot remain a, a faculty member in church employee any longer. But he said, in, in terms of the inquiry from the state president about holding a church court on him, and this had been going on for years, J. Reuben Clark's response was, all we've done is release them from the positions they held. That was his answer to that question. So, and I, I refer to those, and I, and I quote them in the last chapter of the, of the book. So, you know, I, I would ask anyone else, what do you conclude from that? As late as the 1948 and 1950s, were the uh, leadership of the church, the prophets, seers, and revelators, willing to, if not turn a blind eye, at least be lenient with sexual, unquestionably sexual behavior of a homosexual nature. I don't think as a historian I can come to any other conclusion. Maybe readers of, of that evidence have other conclusions, but I can't conclude any other way. And that's, um, that's you know, 1950s. Let me ask it this way. I, I, so Maybe I'm missing the mark a little bit on what I'm trying to get at. I feel, and again, I, this is the one area of your scholarship that I'm the least aware of. I mean, I know I've heard some discussion on the internet uh, about some of the things that you've written, but I've never gone back to the source of the book itself to to see if what I've been told or the way I understood what I've been told is accurate. But what it feels like is that when people are reporting on the book that you've written on uh, on the same-sex dynamics within early LDS history, there is this idea that they're putting across that you know Brother Quinn is essentially put across the premise that that same-sex relationships were were even had to some extent like the stamp of approval of of early leaders in the church. And I guess I'm just trying to figure out if if there's evidence of that, or if maybe the evidence you're pointing to just in the last question is you see as being that stamp of approval for that kind of relationship because just you mean approval of of uh two males having uh, a, a, a giving up approval to two males having oral sex or two males having anal sex or two males mutual masturbation no and the book never never claims that and i and i don't and i i've never said that there was a an approval given for that behavior but there was a leniency given to it, and that general authorities generally, uh, not always, because there are always exceptions to every generality, but from the presidents of the church and the apostles and local leaders from Nauvoo to the 1950s looked at homosexual behavior as less serious than unmarried sex between males and females. That's just how they looked at it. And that Mormon judges, for example, when they confronted male-male rape, and a man was convicted of male-male rape, unconsensual anal intercourse with another male, the man was sentenced by Mormon judges to three to six months in prison, which is the same sentence Mormon judges gave to consensual sex between unmarried males and females. So as a historian, when I look at that and I see that they regard male-male rape as no more serious than consensual sex between females, 
I can come to no other conclusion than they regarded male-male unmarried sex as more serious than male-male sex of any kind, even rape. Gotcha. And I think that clears it up because that I, I think many who are out there talking about your work within that book, the, it seems like the premise they're putting across is that, you know, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and other early church leaders were completely comfortable with homosexual relationships and that essentially the church in our present day has moved away from, from that, uh, knowing approval of those kinds of, that kind of relationship. No, not of, not of, of anal sex or of mutual masturbation or of, uh, oral sex, of any sexual experience that you can expect between males. They did not give their approval to it, but they were more lenient to, toward that than they were toward male, female sexual, sexual behavior outside marriage. And, and then I looked at an environment and presented an environment in which kissing in public, holding hands in public, sleeping together, sharing the same bed for weeks or months or years at a time was a part of American society. And that Mormons valued that physical closeness, um, as much as Americans generally did. And that was approved. It was approved for men to sleep with men. It was approved for sharing the same bed for years at a time. It was approved by the general authorities kissing other men. They kissed themselves. Apostles kissed apostles. Apostles uh, described, like Heber J. Garrett, tears coming to his eyes as he returned the kiss that another man, another apostle was giving to him. And I think anyone who is engaged in a kiss since teenagers knows what it means to return a kiss that someone else is giving to you. They did that. And they, and they, and they saw nothing wrong with that. Now that, you know, you, if you define that as homosexuality, I think your, your definition of homosexuality is, is very skewed. That is affection. Affection that does not involve sexual arousal between people of the same sex, but is nonetheless an expression of closeness that was approved by the 19th century Mormon church and that is disapproved by Mormons generally now because Mormons have become homophobic in a way that they were not in the 19th century. And so that's, you know, I I argue that that is a part of same-sex dynamics. That's why I didn't call it relations because people define relations as in, you know, involving down and dirty sex when you use it in those terms. I very carefully chose the word dynamics because those interrelationships between people of the same sex were deeper, broader, more extensive than, uh, than people today now understand. And they were not only approved, but they were advocated in the, uh, up until the, uh, 20th century in ways that people today do not understand. And that's what I wrote about in the book, and I quoted people, uh, other scholars looking at this from the colonial period to the, to the 20th century involving people like Abraham Lincoln and Daniel Webster and, uh, and, and soldiers and, go, and, and go, uh, generals in the military, um, and involving people like, uh, prime ministers, all of whom had wives and children. 
and and I quoted these scholars as saying this did not involve sexual arousal. And I said, and in the book I said, for 80 to 90 percent of the people who engaged in these behaviors, it did not involve sexual arousal. And I said that over and over and over at least 20 times in the book, not only quoting other people, saying it in my own words. And these homophobes have read this book and have concluded and have told others the absolute lie that I said that the leaders of the church approve sexual behavior between people of the same sex, and I did not. What I did say was that emotional, physical contact of a close nature was standard up until the 21st century, and that Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Mormons accepted that and endorsed it and encouraged it and saw nothing wrong with it, because they did not define it sexually. They defined it as emotional and physical closeness between friends. I I think... I thank you for making that distinction because I think that clears everything up. And I, I think that last little uh, soundbite with you answering that question that way, I think hopefully everybody who listens to this is quite clear on, on what kind of ideas you were building off of and what you were not trying to say that unfortunately, as you point out, many who have read the book who, who in a sense perhaps to either attack you or to, to put some distance between uh, you and, and Orthodox belief have kind of made that more than what it is, and so thank you for doing that. I uh, I want to ask you maybe four or five other questions. I think some of these will be a lot shorter answers as we kind of work towards wrapping this up, uh, because I think the interview is just absolutely valuable, and and people want to know uh, how you how you deal with some of these things. You know, having been uh, essentially removed from the church, and yet you still love the church and, and still have a testimony of it, uh, how this has all kind of worked itself out. So one of those questions is this one, and, and feel free to, you know, you can just yes or no, or if you want to, you know, delve further, you can. But do you think the blessing you received from Spencer W. Kimball, I, I know he gave you a blessing that you would serve as an apostle someday. Um, does that blessing still hold, do you do you think? Is there some, some view that that will come to fruition at some uh, future point? Well, this is how I look at it. I couldn't understand it at the time. I came in to his office, and I reread my diary account of this recently, and, and in one of my accounts, I said it occurred in in June of uh, one of the published accounts that I've given. I, I said by memory that it occurred in June of 1973. Actually, in my diary, it was in January of 1973, and I wrote pages about this, this meeting with Spencer Kimball. But I came in asking him for a blessing to give me the strength and the ability to end my thoughts of becoming an apostle because I regarded that as as a kind of sin. I regarded it as as seeking church office, as as an expression of my lifelong pride and arrogance. And and I even though, and I didn't talk to him about my homosexuality, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm a sexual person and I have sexual temptations. I did say that. And, and I just said that, you know, I, I just, you know, these just, it just is a conflict that I want to be free of. And I, and I would, would like a blessing to give me the ability to overcome this. Because, and if you tell me that I'm absolutely wrong, if President of the Quorum 
of the Twelve, and that's what he was. He was not president of the church. He was president of the Quorum of the Twelve in January 1973. And after we had talked through and his feelings and my feelings about all of this and his having impressions and and some of those not being fulfilled and other impressions being fulfilled and we were just both, you know, it was over a very long hour and about an hour meeting with him. And he said, now, would you, would you like a blessing? And I said, oh, yes, I would. And he laid his hands on my head, and I clearly expected him to say, if not immediately, soon in that blessing, that, you know, that he blessed to give me the, the ability to overcome these, these um, thoughts of, of, of pride and of seeking office and of, of um, what I thought were, were thoughts that were contrary to, you know, God's will, even though I, I fought with myself because I thought it was God's will that I be an apostle. And I couldn't get, I couldn't shake that thought. Um, and that's what I wanted him to do, to give me the ability to shake those feelings. And instead, he promised me that I would one day be an apostle. And I was devastated. That wasn't what I wanted to hear. And when I told my wife afterward what he had said to me, she cried for hours because her knowledge of what I had confided to her about the blessings I'd received from others and the promises I had felt were given to me spiritually had been a burden for her. That she felt that, 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 you know, this was not something she wanted to live with either of my being an apostle. And she struggled with how can you be an apostle and, and be gay as well. I mean, she struggled with that as, you know, as much as her own unhappiness as being the wife of a, of a celibate gay Mormon. And again, I mean, literally, she, she sobbed for hours after I told her what he had said to me. And then after he blessed me, he said, now, I don't want you to live for the fulfillment of that blessing. I don't want you to cater try to cater um, approval from the brethren to ingratiate yourself into what you think would be a position of being an apostle. Well, I certainly live that message. And that count did not try to cater to the brethren. And I accept the consequences of that. But I did not understand at the time, and I do not understand now, and I don't anyone expect anyone else to understand that experience. But I can't doubt it. It happened. And I can't doubt my conviction that he was had every reason to tell me to forget it, and that for reasons beyond any uh, rational understanding, he promised me that I would be an apostle. I can't understand. Can't doubt that that's what he did, and I don't doubt the inspiration that he gave. But I certainly don't understand. I uh, I want to throw in as I as I read that. When I, I read an article, like it was in Sunstone or Dialogue, about that experience that you had. And as I've thought about your life, uh, Brother Quinn, uh, right, to be an apostle is to be a special witness of Jesus Christ and to a secondary extent of the Restoration. And, and yet your life story is that the church chose that it, it didn't, it didn't want you a part of it anymore. It separated it, you from it. And yet to this day, you still bear witness of the Savior and bear witness of the Restoration. And so I, I think in, in general terms, I think it would be fair in some ways to say in the way that an, an apostle is a special witness of those things, your witness is certainly special, 
Uh, and I, I think in some ways, um, I think that connection can be easily made. Well, I would like to think that that's how I've lived my life since January 1973. But um, I was committed before that date to telling the truth about the history of the church. That was a path I was already on. And, uh, but it was also a path I was on of expecting to be an apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve, an ordained apostle. And that certainly did not happen and could not happen. But I, I hope you're right that, that not only in your eyes, but, but hopefully in God's eyes, I have continued to be a special witness for Him and for His church, as flawed as His church and its leaders are. I have tried to maintain my faith and express my faith and to give reasons for others to maintain their faith in those things. So if, if in that doing that, I have been a special kind of witness, maybe a duckbill platypus witness for Mormonism, um, you know, then I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I've done what I, you know, the only thing I could do, um, I've I've continued to be a historian, which is the only kind of historian I know how to be, and I've continued to be the only kind of Mormon I know how to be. And um, for some, those those are contradictory. Uh, for me, they're the only ways I I knew how to be, and so I've tried to be true to those to those callings as I have perceived them. The uh, this was the toughest question uh, as I as we as we. You know, the listeners wrote in and, and I tried to come up with a few of my own. This was the one I think that uh, I was the most hesitant to want to ask you, but it, it feels as though you were excommunicated, uh, for your scholarship, for the, for the books you wrote, for the kind of putting out into the light some of the troublesome issues of church history. And, and yet many want to say that the reason you were excommunicated was for your sexual orientation. Uh, I wondered what your thoughts are on, on the impetus for your excommunication, and maybe if you could shed some light on that. Okay, well, it was a very long process, particularly if you look at it from the first instruction from church headquarters to hold a court on me came, and that came in 1985, when I was a professor of history at BYU, and I had pub- published an article in Dialogue magazine that came out in April um, about plural marriage after the manifesto. And the word came down to my stake president, communicated to him by the area president, James M. Paramore, that three apostles had instructed him to tell my stake president to remove my temple recommend, to confiscate my temple recommend for publishing the article in dialogue, and that if I continued to speak or write uh, about issues of Mormon history that offended the brethren, despite having my temple recommend removed for the dialogue article that the state president was to hold a court on me for apostasy. And at the end of that meeting with the state president, Paramore told him uh, that he was to tell me that these were instructions that uh, originated with the state president. And the state president, in a discussion that he related to me, that he said ended up lasting as an argument with Paramore between him and his counselors and Paramore for two and a half hours. He told the state president that he saw nothing in my article and dialogue that that was contrary to uh, rules and regulations of the church. His counselors agreed, and one of his counselors was 
uh, Richard uh, Hinckley, the I think the oldest son of Gordon B. Hinckley, who was in the Twelve at that time and wasn't one of the three apostles who gave these instructions to Paramore. And so finally, at the end of that two and a half hours of argument going back and forth, where they said they could not agree with what they'd been told and what the assessment of the article that they'd been given, then my stake president said, well, if you want me to take his temple recommend and give him this warning about future work, then uh, I'll tell him exactly how it came about. And Paramore said, you can't do that. You're going to have to tell him that everything you do is your own idea. And my stake president told Paramore, and he put, told me this in his own words. And I got the same account from one of his counselors, uh, who also described it separately to me, that the stake president, Hugh West, president of the immigration or Salt Lake immigration stake, told Paramore, I'm not going to lie to Brother Quinn. If you want me to do this, I will tell him exactly how it came about. I will tell him about our two-and-a-half-hour meeting, and I will tell him it's over my objection. And Paramore shook his head and said, well, I have done what I have been told by three prophets and revelators in the Quorum of the Twelve to do. I have fulfilled my responsibility, and you do what you feel you're, you can do. And he walked out at that point. So they wanted to excommunicate me if I continued doing work. Well, I was in the process of researching the magic book when I got this message in June of 1985. And I told the state president, first of all, that I thanked him for the honesty and what he told me. And I handed him my temple recommend as he asked me to have it. But I said, I will not be intimidated by anybody. And I am going to continue trying to understand these documents that have been released concerning Joseph Smith and treasure digging and uh, these beliefs that we regard as magical, and I'm not going to stop. And my intention is to, to speak about them, and I've agreed to speak a month from, or two months from now, publicly about Joseph Smith and what I found. And I said, uh, I, I'm not going to alter what I say or what I do. And he said, my state president said to me, I'm an executive in an insurance company, Beneficial Life, as it was. He said, I'm not going to tell you how to be a historian. And so you be the kind of historian that you feel you can, you know, you need to be. And I've told you, you know, the circumstances of the instructions I was given. And I feel I had to take a temple recommend. But I am not going to hold a court on you. I will not tell you how to be uh, a historian, but do your best to try to avoid these conflicts with the brethren. And I told him I would do my best, but I didn't see how I could afford, how, how I could avoid offending those three who had given orders for me to him to hold a court on me and me still be a historian. So the desire to excommunicate me and the orders to do it had come as early as 1985. I remained on the faculty at BYU for another three years. And he told me, if anyone at BYU, my stake president told me, if anyone at BYU asked if I had a temple recommend for me to say that I had a valid temple recommend and not to volunteer anything that he had disclosed to me and not to volunteer that his recommend was in his desk drawer and that he would continue renewing it every time it expired, 
uh, for me, and he can, and he called me uh, a month later to a position in the stake president, and not a stake presidency, in the presidency of the stake Sunday school. And I was sustained to that in the tabernacle at our next stake meeting, even though he knew that three members of the Quorum of the Twelve wanted me excommunicated, not only for the the uh, article on pearl marriage in dialogue, but for speaking in August in the Hotel Utah on Joseph Smith and Magic, which ended up on the front page of the local section of the Salt Lake Tribune in August. And in the following uh, fall, I was publicly sustained as a counselor in the Sunday School Superintendent. So, leap forward. I knew that when I left BYU and moved to California, was the plan, that I would no longer have the protection of a state president who said he would not hold a court on me, no matter what he'd been told by general authorities. And so I went underground and uh, moved my temple recommend, and my temple recommend, excuse me, moved my uh, membership to the ward of my attorney in Salt Lake and went offline for any knowledge of church headquarters of where I was. And church procedures, I knew, said you couldn't be excommunicated unless they did it at a uh, in a stake uh, where you lived. And I went into hiding for five years while I was healing from the process of losing my job, losing my temple recommend, and losing my marriage in the space of a couple of years. And so I was in therapy and with all of these issues and came after a five-year period, came to a point where I felt healthy enough to deal with no longer hiding out. So I moved back to Salt Lake in September of 1992, moved to an apartment three blocks north of the temple in the Salt Lake Stake, and in February of 1993, the first contact I had formally with anyone in the church was not home teachers, but was three members of the stake presidency, the stake president and his two counselors, appearing on my doorstep with the accusation that my recent publications had constituted apostasy. And, they pre- and the stake president presented me with a, an outline letter accusing me of apostasy, saying that he was going to hold a court on me for apostasy. And the three reasons for holding this court were, one, my essay on women in the priesthood that was published in 1992 in a book by uh, edited by Maxine Hanks, two, an article I published in Sunstone in 1992, which uh, examined instances where speaking about the Mormon past had been uh, punished, rather, or writing about the Mormon past by church historians, uh, had been punished by church church headquarters, and I titled it 150 Years of Truth and Consequences in Mormon History, and that was itemized with its publication dates, just like the essay on women in the priesthood. And then the third example was an article in the newspaper where I had told the reporters that church headquarters used to accept a, the existence of a faithful um, descent, but that now the church wanted cookie-cutter Mormon, and that was the third example. 
of apostasy for which the stake president said he wanted to hold a court on. Then when I was excommunicated in September, when my excommunication court had been delayed from uh, August without explanation, and it was postponed until September so that it could coincide with the courts held on five other outspoken uh, researchers and publishers about Mormon Mormonism, not necessarily only about the Mormon past. When I received the letter announcing my excommunication, apostasy was not a part of it. Sexuality was not a part of it. I was excommunicated, the letter said, for my refusal to meet with the stake president and cooperate in his investigation of me. And that's why the letter said I was excommunicated for my conduct of rebellion uh, that was inconsistent with uh, being a member of the church. So they uh, had started out with apostasy concerning historical issues in February, but by December they had dropped those official charges and I was excommunicated for insubordination. Let me ask this this way. So obviously there were members of the 12 who were not happy with the things you were publishing. Many of that was just kind of dealing with our church history and the messiness of it. And, uh, and, and while certainly some of those things are run the risk of hurting the faith of someone else simply because they're not aware of it or because some history at times can be tough to swallow, uh, yet at the same time, it's just history and there's, and there are facts involved. And now looking back, I mean, there's, you know, you're excommunicated. Lots of time has gone by. Has anybody ever, ever said they're sorry? Has anybody within the church leadership ever taken you aside and said, you know, either speaking just for themselves or maybe even speaking for the church generally said, hey, you know, you kind of got a raw deal and we're really sorry about that? No. <laughs> no. Uh, I got, uh, during the time when I was being, um, uh, investigated and uh, uh, subject to an excommunication court in September of 1993, I got two calls out of the blue. One was from a general authority, a functioning member of the Council of Seventy, and he said he had several messages for me. One, I've never met him. It wasn't Marindy Rum. I'm Marindy Hanks with another member of the Seventy. And he said, I want you to know that there are members of my quorum, like me, who have read your work and admire it and do not feel threatened by it and do not feel that it is threatening to the member of, members of the church. He said, I want you to know that I and these other members of my quorum admire you. And I want you to know that our hope is that you will not suffer excommunication. But he said, the last thing I want you to know is that even though we love you and admire you and admire what you've written, there is not a thing we can do to help you. Then I also got a call from an area presidency in California. And the executive presidency, or the executive secretary of the area presidency, all of whom were general authorities, this man had been a state president before he was called as the executive secretary, but he was not a general authority. He called me and said he was planning to resign because of September 6th. And it so surprised me. I blurted out, God, no, don't do that. They'll replace you with somebody like 
Boyd Packer. And then I apologized for using the profanity, which for me wasn't a profanity. It was kind of like a prayer. And we spent an hour on the phone, my trying to talk him out of resigning. And I don't know if he did or not. He never had a conversation since that time. But I did get those kinds of messages. But in terms of what you have suggested or asked if I'd gotten from anybody in the leadership, we're sorry, if, you know, we apologize, da-da-da-da. No. And I don't expect that. They don't apologize. Um, if they apologized to me personally, I would wonder why haven't they given an apology over the pulpit or in a written statement to all the African Americans and the descendants and the ancestors of African Americans in the church whom they had blighted by the, these false teachings about uh, fence sitters in the, in the pre-existence and about God commanding them not to give the priesthood to, to blacks when there had never been such a command. It had been an announcement by uh, Brigham Young, which they now acknowledge, and it had come out of his culture of prejudice, which they now acknowledge, but they have never apologized to the millions of African Americans and, Af and people of African descent throughout the world who were denied not only the priesthood, but denied the sense of being an equal child of God for more than 100 years, 100, almost 150 years. If they haven't given that kind of apology to those millions who deserve it, why should I expect a personal apology? Right. So I don't. Right. I uh, I want to end uh, with just I guess one last question, uh, which is: is there is there a book on the way uh, from D. Michael Quinn? Is there is there more work to come? Is there other things that you're working on that we can soon expect to to get our hands on and read? Yes, I can announce this because Signature Books has announced it uh, in their uh, two-page uh, centerpiece of, of the most recent issue of Sunstone Magazine that they'll be publishing my uh, significantly large book about uh, church finances and business from 1830 to 2010. It'll be published before the end of the year. Now, they announced the publication date of August. I'll just be happy if it makes it out before Christmas. But they have announced that, and they, they've had it uh, for almost three years now. And they had a lineup of publications that, you know, they had to get to before mine. But anyway, um, so that's coming out. I've also just signed a contract with the University of Utah Press uh, for a book tentatively titled Plural Marriage Among the Mormons, or, uh, 1890 to 1915. And that's another book that I'm working on now. The one on business and finance I finished research on two years ago, three years ago, uh, and have only done follow-up research where somebody has said, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And then I've reluctantly looked at what I needed to and then begged for permission to do some revisions on the chapters I'd already submitted to Signature Books, and they've graciously allowed me to do that. But I haven't done any serious, intensive research on business and finance for about three years. But I am seriously doing research on this new book that I signed a contract with from the University of Illinois Press. And so I, I, I guess I have one more book left in me. Awesome. 
not Illinois, excuse me, University of Utah Press, University of gotcha. Utah Press. I, uh, I'm excited for that. I've always enjoyed your work. Uh, the, the book you wrote where you kind of really get us into, uh, some of the meetings in a sense that the, that the top hierarchy of the church have, uh, uh, the origins of power and I think extensions of power. Uh, wonderful, wonderful work. Right. As you read those books, it's almost like you're transported into those rooms and, and you have a chance to really get a feel for what goes on. And I've always, uh, been an admirer of your work, uh, Brother Quinn, and appreciate you taking time today to sit down and, and, and tell your story and, and talk a little bit about, um, maybe some of the things that people are thinking about today and, and how to, put those things back together and and again thank you for your time uh can't wait to to see your forthcoming work uh so again d michael quinn thank you for being on mormon discussion and thank you for your patience in all these hours of listening to me run off at the mouth that was perfect i uh i find this to be super valuable and my listeners will as well say